All right, good morning. Well, you're probably thinking that was fast. Our ushers are coming to take the offering. So if you've come prepared to give, you can do that now. Um, you're probably thinking that was fast. We are gonna spend some more time in worship on the back end because what we're gonna see from our passage today in Isaiah is that he calls us to respond to his goodness with our new songs. And so if the scripture says the application of this text is sing to me a new song, then that's what we're gonna do. We're gonna sing to the Lord on the backside of our study of his word today. So it will prepare us then to respond to God in praise. As the offering is being passed, let me just do one bit of, bit of housekeeping uh, and say, if you are a part of our church, and that doesn't mean just a member, like, you know, you've kind of gone through the formal membership process, but if you would just call West Shore home, you're like, I, I come here regularly, this is the place I come to church, I want to invite you, uh, if you get the weekly email, then you saw this. If you don't, then you did not see this. We, every year, we send out our church life assessment. Uh, in the past, we called it our three deep assessment. We're just calling it our church life assessment at this point. We've worked really hard to continue to revamp this. In my opinion, I, and I can say this because I pretty much wrote it, uh, it wasn't very good in years past. I've got new eyes on it. It's awesome this year. Uh, so here's what I want to encourage you with. Our whole goal in this is that we don't want to be a church that just measures success by the number of people that show up or things like that. We want to measure success by how well we're doing and guiding people into a deep relationship with Jesus and into a deep love for other people. And so would you please take a few minutes, it'll take you about 10 minutes to answer about 22 questions, maybe it's 23, uh, that really talk about, you know, where are you in terms of our strategies of church is that we ask everybody to be involved in four things, worship, belong, train, and multiply. We think every believer needs those four things in their life. They need to worship with, with the body, they need to belong with one another, like to be, have close relationships, uh, they need to be trained and equipped to engage with the culture at large and know how to speak the gospel. Uh, and, they, and they need to multiply. They need to share their faith and they need to help others know Jesus. They need to make disciples. That's what Jesus has called us to do. So we think every believer is called to do those four things. And so we wanna guide you into those kinds of experiences. It will help us to know how well we're doing as leaders at guiding you what we're making clear, what we're not making clear, if you will take this assessment for us. So if you would this week, jump on the website, take it. If you want, you can sign up for the email that comes out weekly and that will give you a link to it. That would be one thing you could do to get this assessment. The other thing is just go to the website and take it. Okay, so that's my housekeeping. I just wanted to point that out. If you would all please do that, it would be a huge service to us as a church to help us serve you more effectively. So let me pray now and then we're gonna dive into Isaiah 41 and 42 today. Lord, as, as George just said to you, we've sung that the right response of those of us here on earth as we imagine the angels declaring your holiness is that we would respond by declaring it too. By saying, yes, that is who you are. And so we praise you. We say hallelujah to you. Praise God. You are holy. And we thank you that you have revealed your holiness and your purity and your goodness, the full representation of your character, Father, has been revealed in your son, Jesus. You have shown us who you are when you have shown us him. And so we wanna gaze upon him today. We wanna look at him. Father, give me strength now to make the name of Jesus plain, to make his character plain, to help us to see him, see how worthy he is, how good he is, how his way is better than every other way. Help us to see it. Quicken our spirits. Help me to preach now. Help your people to receive your word and to hear it. Holy Spirit, bring application well beyond anything I would say. 
bring it into the lives of your people as only you can, knowing exactly where your word needs to land in each heart and mind, in each life. You know exactly where it needs to land. You know the comfort that needs to be brought. You know the conviction that needs to be brought. You know it. And so we pray that you would do what only you can do now. As we come to your word, we submit ourselves to it. We trust its authority and we say that all that it tells us is right and true and good. We want to submit to. We want to love what you love. We don't want to waste our lives on other things. We want to spend them on you and for you. We pray that you would help us. Help us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So let's dive right in. Isaiah chapter 41, verses 21 through chapter 42, verse 10. I just want to read them. It's a little bit longer section uh, than we sometimes read. So just stick with me. If you've got your Bible, you can open up there. We'll put the words on the screen as well. So beginning in verse 21 of Isaiah 41, just follow along with me. He says this, Set forth your case, says the Lord. Bring your proofs, says the king of Jacob. Let them bring them and tell us what is to happen. Tell us the former things, what they are, that we may consider them, that we may know their outcome. Or declare to us the things to come. Tell us what is to come hereafter, that we may know that you are God's. Do good or do harm, that we may be dismayed and terrified. Behold, you are nothing, and your work is less than nothing. An abomination is he who chooses you. I stirred up one from the north, and he has come from the rising of the sun, and he shall call upon my name. He shall trample on rulers as on mortar, as the potter treads clay. Who declared it from the beginning that we might know, and beforehand that we might say, he is right. There was none who declared it, none who proclaimed, none who heard your words. I was the first to say to Zion, behold, here they are. And I give to Jerusalem a herald of good news, but when I look, there is no one among these, there is no counselor who, when I ask, gives an answer. Behold, they, all, they are all a delusion. Their works are nothing. Their metal images are empty wind. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Sing to the Lord a new song, his praise from the end of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that fills it, the coastlands and their inhabitants. So this is the word of the Lord. 
And essentially we have three movements in this text, in this section of Isaiah. And I'll tell you what those three movements are. And then I want to focus on the middle one of those movements, if you will, because it's really the center of this whole text. So what we see is that in the first part of uh, this section in Isaiah 41, 21 to 29, what, I, what uh, the Lord is talking about, he's talking to idols and it's a, he's being sarcastic. Did you pick up the tone of sarcasm? Uh, he is speaking to the idols and saying, you think and say that you have power, but you have no power. And he says to him, look, if you can tell me the future, go ahead and tell me. Tell me what's going to happen to prove that you are something. And then he says, you can't do that. And he says, why don't you tell me the past and tell me the right outcomes that should be drawn from the things that happened in the past. Nope, you can't do that either. He says, why don't you just do anything if you can do anything, go ahead and do it, that we may be fearful, terrified, and dismayed, that we would know that you have some kind of power, any kind of power, show us. And his response is to say, you have none. You are empty wind. Did you catch that phrase at the end of chapter 41? You are like empty wind. You have no authority, you have no power. So, Essentially what God is doing, and he did it earlier in chapter 41 too, is he's challenging these idols and he's saying, I'm the one true God and you are nothing. All these idols that my people have worshipped, all these idols that the nations worshipped, they're nothing. They have no real substance behind them. That's the argument that he's making. And then you might expect that he would go on then in, in chapter 42 to say, so let me tell you about my power. My power is that I'm the creator. I set the stars in the sky. You remember in Isaiah chapter 40, just one chapter ago, you remember that he spent a lot of time talking about his incomparable majesty. He said, I am above and beyond all of this. I am sovereign over it. I control it all. In fact, he alluded to that again in this text. He was talking about Cyrus earlier in this chapter, who's the king that's going to come from Persia and he's going to conquer all these nations. And he's alluding to him again here and saying, I control world events. I control which kings are ruling which countries and where they are and how much authority they have and who they conquer and who they don't conquer. I control all of that. So we might expect that he's going to spend a lot of time in chapter 42 just dwelling on his awe-inspiring awe power. But that's not what he does. What he does is he begins to tell us about his true and better servant. He begins now for the first time. This is in Isaiah, the first of what we call the servant psalms or the servant songs, where he's going to begin to talk about this true and better servant that he's going to send, that is going to usher in a new and better way for all the nations of the earth. He's talking about Jesus. He's gonna to begin to talk about Jesus and he's gonna to begin to unfold, starting right here in chapter 42, who this Messiah, this Savior would be when he comes on the scene in about 650 years or about 700 years from when he's talking about it. So it's a long way in the future, but he's beginning to tell who he's gonna be. Now, one of the reasons we know that Isaiah 42 verses one through four, specifically this middle movement of the section, the reason we know it applies to Jesus is because in Matthew chapter 12, Jesus is doing this amazing healing work. He's healing all these people that are coming to him. And right after he heals this whole group of people, it's one of the few times actually where Jesus heals everybody. Most of the time you get the sense that Jesus healed some people and then he kind of moved on, you know, but in this one, in Matthew 12, it says Jesus healed every single person who was within the vicinity. Like everyone who was coming to him, he was like, you know, it's like Oprah, right? You get a candle under your seat and you get a candle under your seat. Right? Like, you get a, I should never compare Oprah and Jesus. That's a bad, that's a bad, bad move. Um, anyway, the point is he just, heal, he heals everybody that's in the vicinity. And, and then it says, after he's done all that healing, it says he did this 
so that they, people would know that this prophecy is fulfilled by him. And it just, it quotes Isaiah 42 in Matthew chapter 12. It just goes through the first four verses, quotes them specifically and says, this is who Jesus was, the one that Isaiah was talking about. This is the one Isaiah was talking about. And so then what he's gonna do, the third movement, and we come back to the middle one. The third movement then is gonna be like, well, how do you respond to this news, right? He's saying, idols are nothing. I'm everything. And if you wanna know that I'm everything, let me, let me show you how I'm gonna show you I'm everything. I'm gonna send my son into the world and he's gonna be like nothing you've ever seen. He's gonna be better than anything you've ever tasted or touched or looked at. He's gonna be the thing above all things, the one above all ones. He's gonna be like nothing else. That's how I'm gonna show you who I am. And then he's gonna, show, he's gonna say, let me show you how to respond to that. He's gonna say, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the, to the Lord a new song. Refresh your praise again and again and again. Refresh your praise. Bring forth to the creator of the universe a new song because he is doing a new thing in your heart today. His mercies are new this morning. So you sing your old song in a way that is new and fresh today because his mercy is new today. You with me? So those are the three movements. And what I want to center in on is who Jesus is. And my simple goal today is this. I want you to see, I want you to see if the idols in chapter 41 represent really empty religion, right? Empty, superstitious, performance-based religion that is just dead and does nothing. If that's what the idols represent, then I want you to see how much better Jesus is. So if you're skeptical about Christianity, if you're skeptical about faith in Jesus, I, I want to paint a picture for you today. I hope I can do it. That Jesus is better than the thing you worship. And make no mistake, you worship something. And Jesus is better than that thing. He has a better way for you. And for those of you who might be falling into that trap, you might consider yourself a follower of Jesus, but you, if you really examine your heart and your life, you recognize I'm kind of falling into, uh, into this dry performance-based, dead version of religion that really has very little to do with following Jesus. It really has very little to do with the, the, with the way of Jesus. I wanna see if we can't recapture that flame in your heart for the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, that you would recognize that everything, everything revolves around loving him first and most and giving yourself completely to him. This whole endeavor of the Christian life is not about a bunch of rules and regulations. It's not about towing some line. It's not about performance. It is about coming to Jesus in a daily, living, active relationship with him, and it is available to you. If it's become dry, if it's become old, if you find yourself feeling weary, my prayer is the Holy Spirit would just blow a fresh wind into you today. Just blow a fresh wind into your heart for the name of Jesus. So let's look at him. Can we look at him? Can we look at him? Yeah. Awesome. That was good. That was like the best one ever. <laughs> I had to ask for it twice, but it was good. All right. So the way of Jesus, so much better than empty religion. So let's talk. Oh, oh let me say this about empty religion. Okay. Because we got to get our mind around this. All right. Before we look at verses one through four of, of chapter 42. When I say empty religion, I have in mind two things. There's essentially two types of empty religion, right? The first I would, I would term religious empty religion. 
And this is the person who probably comes to church a lot or goes to mosque a lot or goes to temple a lot or goes wherever, but essentially believes that their standing with God is based upon following a set of rules and regulations. It's performance-based. It's like, I, I am following the rules better than others or as well as I can or whatever, but essentially whether, and, and this is religions of the world, and this is some people who would claim the name of Christ, but ultimately, if you really boil it down, the essence of your faith is in your ability to be good. That, that, is, that is essentially a religious version of empty religion that produces nothing, or, well, nothing good, I should say. And then there's irreligious, empty religion. So perhaps you're, you would say, well, I'm, I'm like I'm a secular humanist or I, you know, I'm an atheist or whatever and I'm, I've come with a friend today and I don't really, so the empty religion thing does not apply to me. I wanna go back again to what we said last week and I can make a stronger argument for it maybe another day, I don't have time today, but just to say everybody worships something, right? Whether it's your own freedom and autonomy, your own independence, whether it's your kids or your, your romantic relationship, Whatever it is that you derive purpose and value and meaning from, that's the thing that you ultimately worship, the thing you can't live without. And if we all worship something, if that premise is true, if that's true, then there is an irreligious form of empty religion that some of us are subject to. And it tends to where religious empty religion tends to produce legalism and judgmentalism and tends to produce this self-righteousness in us, irreligious Irreligious empty religion tends to create, I would argue, a hopelessness because ultimately irreligious empty religion is all about finding things to make my life better in the now. I worship money or I worship power or I worship a relationship. And ultimately when I do those things, it doesn't offer me any hope beyond the grave. There is nothing about that that gives me any hope in any kind of an eternal sense. And so there's a, there's a trap there that there, there can only be a limited amount, a limited quantity of hope when it comes to irreligious types of worship. Does that make sense? Now, when I say empty religion and Jesus is better than empty religion, I have in mind both of those things. I have in mind both of those types of empty religious worship. Okay, so let's look and see how Jesus is described here. Beginning again in verse one. The first thing that we see about the way of Jesus is that it is the way of a life-giving spirit. And I'll explain what I mean by that. But that the way of Jesus is the way of a life-giving spirit. The first thing he says, Behold my servant, God says, whom I uphold, my chosen, and whom my soul delights. And then he says, I have put my spirit upon him. So the very first thing he's going to say, other than before he says, I'm, I'm pleased with him and I love him, he's going to say, I have poured out my spirit upon this servant. So Jesus possessed the spirit of God, obviously being God, he possessed the spirit of God as in his human form in a way that no one else ever had. And he ushered in, here's the key thing, he ushers in for all who will follow him a different type of, a different type of, uh, living in the power of the Spirit than had ever existed before. And I don't know if we give enough credence to that idea that the world was fundamentally changed in that throughout human history, people had had moments where they'd interacted with the Spirit of God. And Jesus ushers in a time where he says, everyone who comes to me by faith will now be indwelt by the Spirit of God. And that creates an entirely different situation for those of us who would follow him. You remember at Jesus' baptism, uh, if, you've, if you've read the Gospels before, 
You remember in Jesus' baptism, John the Baptist is standing there, he's gonna baptize him and Jesus is doing it. And he says, I, John the Baptist says, I shouldn't, I shouldn't do this. I'm not worthy to untie your sandals. And Jesus says, no, 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 you need to do this. I'm asking you to do it because his baptism was an indicator that God's spirit was resting upon him. And do you remember what happened when he was baptized and came up out of the water? It says, the heavens parted and there was an audible voice that declared, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him, right? That's about as simple as a statement as God could make to us, right? Just listen to him. And then the spirit descends in the form of a dove and, and rests upon Jesus as if to indicate this is like a new thing that's about to happen here. There's this new activity of the Holy Spirit that's about to come about. The third person of the Trinity is coming to do a new thing. So here's, here's why this is so much better than the way of empty religion. Because empty religion has a lot of requirements of it. You know, if you worship, um, if, if you worship Allah, then you have five pillars of Islam to keep as well as, I don't know if you've ever read the Quran before, but you have a lot of rules to keep. A lot of things you must do in, in order to feel confident that when you die, Allah will receive you, right? And you know what? As Christians, do we have a lot of commands that God has given us? Has Jesus given us commands that we should follow? Yeah, absolutely, right? So no different, right? Commands in Islam, commands in Christianity. But here's the difference. In Christianity, we are not given a set of commands that we must follow without the power to be able to follow those commands. We are given a new empowerment to be able to do what it is we are told we must do. Now, how good is that? When you've been given commands like love your enemy, love your neighbor as yourself, do you think you could do that in your own strength? But what if God put his spirit inside you and then said, now, now you have a resource. Now you have something completely different. And I'm gonna tell you to love your enemy. Pray for those who persecute you. I'm gonna tell you to love the people who are nothing like you. I'm gonna tell you that you should love your neighbor as yourself. And you should love me with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. I'm gonna tell you to do those things. Those are, those are lofty commands. But with them comes the empowerment of the spirit. Do you see the difference? It's a massive difference. I mean, so take it into the irreligious realm. Like if you worship money, right? If money's your thing, if you're like, I, money makes me feel secure, makes me feel powerful, makes me feel okay, right? And in essence, you're saying without it, I'm, I'm not okay. If that's your deal, just think about how, how enslaving it can be. Because you, you have to watch the market like a hawk, don't you? You have to watch your portfolio at all times. You have to be able to try and control what is uncontrollable. You have to be the smartest person in the room at all times so that you can make sure that something that cannot be controlled, the market, can be controlled so that you can be okay to have what you need to have to be okay. You have, you, even in, irreligious, in the irreligious realm of worship, the things that we worship command immense things from us and give us no power by which we are enabled to accomplish them. Money makes demands on you like you would not believe. You will have to work your tail off if you worship money. You will sacrifice your family to that. You will sacrifice your kids. You will sacrifice everything to get that when you love it first and most. It will take from you, it will require of you, and it will give you nothing in return in order to in order to really get what you need. 
That's the difference between empty religion and the way of Jesus. As Jesus says, I, I will pour out my spirit upon everyone who comes to me. And because you will have my spirit, you will have a fresh empowerment to do what it is that you need to do. Now, here's my, that's not new for a lot of you. I know that. You're like, yes, I'm aware that the Holy Spirit indwells believers. And I'm aware that that's supposed to be a resource for us because the Holy Spirit comes in and he, I always remember the acronym PURE, P-U-R-E. The Holy Spirit's work, according to the Bible, is to purify, to unify, to reveal, and to empower. That he does all of those works, right? That he purifies us and makes us like Jesus. That he unifies us with our brothers and sisters in the faith. Even those whom we are very different than. He unifies us together. He reveals the will of God to us. Shows us what it's like to follow him, guides us day in, day out. And he empowers us to do mighty works so that people would know that Jesus is the son of God. Now here's the interesting question that I think is worth asking. Let's just imagine for a second. Let me, let me, let me just come close to blasphemy without doing it, okay? Let's just imagine the Holy Spirit was not part of who God was. Just imagine for a second that God was God the Father and God the Son. And there was no Holy Spirit. God the Father creates the world with the Son, plans redemption, <clears throat> and then sends the Son into the world to accomplish redemption, to die on the cross and rise from the dead. And says, everyone who comes to me by faith is mine and will have eternal life. But then there's no Spirit. There's no sending of the Spirit. There's no indwelling of the Spirit. Here's my question to you. Those of you who claim to follow Jesus, would your life look any different would your life and your walk with Jesus be any different if there was no Holy Spirit? One of the greatest testimonies to a watching world of believers, I think, would be a people who were having a moment-by-moment -moment relationship with God's Spirit, who were expecting him to lead them so, so that they, they stopped and they prayed and they waited when they had to make a decision. They said, what do you want, what do you want me to do? They trusted him to empower them to do things they knew they could never do, so they tried really hard things instead of bailing out and, and wasting their life on safety. That the Holy Spirit was active and moving and, and, and spoke to you and guided you and even gave you wisdom and insight into people's lives where you might say to them, like, hey, I, I sense that perhaps this might be going on. Is that actually going on? And they would say, how did you know? And you say, well... <laughs> Because the Spirit of God told me that there would be this, that, that. Now, don't you think that if I'm following a way of empty religion and I see someone who seems to have this personal, ongoing, moment-by-moment -moment guidance of God himself active in their life, would that be compelling to me? I mean, I, I think I might ask the question, how is it that you don't just look to general principles to figure out what to do in every situation? How is it that you seem to have some kind of a guidance that I know nothing about. You seem to just, you seem to appeal to God for wisdom and it seems to come, right? I think it's an important question to ask. Would my walk with Jesus look any different if the Holy Spirit was not one of the members of the Trinity, if there wasn't a Trinity, if there was just God the Father and God the Son? So the second thing we see now, the second thing we see about the way of Jesus is that it's not just a way of a life-giving spirit, but the way of Jesus is the way of a true and better justice. Look at what the next thing he says is in verse one. He says, I will put my spirit upon him 
And he says, he will bring forth justice to the nations. And then he's gonna repeat that in verse three and he's gonna repeat it again in verse four. So there must be something important about that, that in the course of four verses, he's three times gonna say that this servant that he's gonna send, Jesus, is going to bring justice to the ends of the earth, justice to every nation. Now, here's the thing you need to recognize about empty religion, whether it be irreligious or religious. Empty religion has a way of making us very self-righteous. It has a way of making us judgmental of others. And here's how it does that. It does that because it makes it possible for us, when it does it, it makes it possible for us to justify the oppression of others in big and small ways because ultimately our approval before God is based upon our performance. And if I perform well, then I'm better than you who didn't perform well, right? And so in small ways, or perhaps even in big ones, I'm able to oppress those who don't agree with me. Whether it be, I follow this religion and you do not, therefore I am justified in oppressing you because God favors me over you. Because I have figured out the truth. I have figured out what is really going on, right? Or that's the religious realm. How about the irreligious realm, right? If you worship your kids, if your kids are everything to you, right? Then, and, and, they're doing well in life, those kids are doing well in life, then you get to look down on other people who are not doing so well with their kids, right? You get to look at that parent who's in Target with the screaming kids and go, yeah, (laughs) better than they are because my kids are doing well. That's a double-edged sword, by the way, because they probably just shoplifted something. You didn't even see it. You slipped it in their back pocket. When you worship your kids, man, you become the most judgmental person in the world when your kids are doing well and other other kids are screaming in Target, right? A little more discipline, okay? It doesn't matter if it's religious or irreligious. What empty religion does is it plays on your self-righteousness and it makes you justify yourself by your performance before God. And when you perform well and others don't, you feel justified in belittling, in mocking, and in oppressing. Now, I'm using, you know, the example of kids and stuff, but that happens across races and ethnic boundaries. It happens all the time in the world where religious and irreligious people figure out ways to stay off, they don't want to be bottom on the totem pole, so they figure out a way to keep other groups underneath them and they, they can justify it because their true religion, their true religion is self-worship. It's, it's I'm good enough and you are not and therefore I'm justified. But the way of Jesus is so different. It's so different. See, those who follow the way of Jesus, they can never justify oppressing anyone not just because Jesus said, love your enemies. Do we remember he said that, right? It's not just because he said that. It's because he said the way that you will be made right before God has nothing to do with your performance. Nothing. So you can never look at someone who's underperforming and say, I have outperformed you. You can never do that. Because he says, none of you have performed well at all. But there is one who has performed perfectly and your salvation rests upon him. And because it rests upon him and his grace extended to you by faith, then, then you know 
you have no ground to oppress. So not only, so the way of Jesus doesn't allow you to oppress anyone. Those who truly follow the way of Jesus cannot oppress the other, the person who's not like them, whether it be an an enemy, whether it be someone of a different religious group, there can be no oppression. There can be only love that tries to draw to Jesus and wants to draw to Jesus. There can be only that because it's a gospel of grace, not a gospel of works and performance, but also because of what he declares here. What Isaiah is telling us and what Matthew 12, when it talks about this, applying to Jesus is telling us is that Jesus is one day going to usher in a kingdom of perfect justice and perfect righteousness, that he is coming to do it and that that kingdom will have people from every nation. He doesn't say, I will bring justice for a select few, does he? What does he say? I will bring justice for the nations, For everyone, God is on the move all the time, winning people to the faith. I think the last, don't quote me on this because I'm I'm not, I didn't do the research this week, but if I remember correctly, there are 90,000 people around the globe every day coming to Jesus. 90,000. Again, you can fact check me on that. If it's not 90,000, it's a lot. God is on the move bringing about justice for the nations. Now, one bit of explanation I need to do for you so that we make sure that we're clear on this is what we mean when we say justice. Because I say justice, and you probably think of the idea of someone who's done something wrong getting punished for the thing they did wrong. And that's a part of justice. But biblically, whenever the, the scriptures talk about justice, they're talking about something beyond just the punishment of wickedness and those who oppress and those who commit violence. They're also talking about the complete reinstitution of systems at at a corporate, at a grand cosmic level. There's this idea of justice in the Bible that says when Jesus comes and establishes justice, the simplest definition I can give for you is this. He will take everything that's broken and he will make it whole. That's what justice is biblically. Taking every broken, fractured thing and making it right again. That includes individual people and it includes systems and laws in society. It includes re-establishing everything, the whole thing, the whole gamut. And so when Jesus says, I'm coming and I'm gonna execute justice for the nations, he is saying that in me there will be peace and harmony and righteousness. But here's the thing, friends, here's the thing. Do you, do you see how that's different? That when you follow that way, you, you can, it's, the trajectory that we're on is that this is going to happen. We're headed towards this kingdom, right? That just requires, I mean, it, what it does is it just, it just rips away that. So let me ask a, a cha- maybe another challenging question when it comes to this, right? So let's examine ourselves here for a second. If you would count yourself among the non-religious, my question for you would be this. Just... I find that sometimes those who, have, who will not ascribe to Christianity, uh, they don't do so for reasons that are different than what they actually say they are. So I've been in a number of conversations where, you know, there's a number of objections that are made, but really what I find is that there's been hurt or disillusionment, usually with someone who is a Christian who wronged them. And so there's logical reasons, logical reasons given for why you won't ascribe to the faith uh, why you don't want to follow Jesus. But at the end of the day, really, it, it's more about that hurt. And, and if you're honest with yourself, sometimes that gets hidden. Right? I'm not saying that's intentional. I think it kind of gets hidden in there sometimes because we often 
don't understand our motives or why we do stuff. That happens. So this maybe is a little bit of a litmus test question for you. If you could imagine that Jesus is the only one who could establish justice for all the nations, if what I've just said is true, that every form of religion, whether it be secular or religious religious, so that's sort of outright religious, every form that's based on performance ultimately will breed self-righteousness and therefore cannot, cannot bring about justice. Can't happen. Jesus then becomes the only way that justice could actually come into the world. This full throttled kind of justice that I'm talking about, right? This wholeness. If Jesus really is because his salvation is by grace, not by performance, if he's the only one that can do that, and you, you started to see logically that makes sense, would you still resist coming to him if you believed that could, you could see it he can bring justice and he can bring it for the reasons we've just said. Would you still resist coming to him? And if you would, is it possible that the reason you resist coming to him is really not for the reasons you say it is and you need to re-examine faith in him again because he can do what no one else can do. Now for the religious among us, for those of us who spend our time in church and even would say, I follow, I, I, I follow and I want to follow the way of Jesus, Our question for us is this. Is there any group of people towards whom you feel animosity and towards whom you feel prejudice, towards whom you embrace stereotypes? Is there any group of people about whom that is true in your heart? You gotta be honest. You have to be honest and say, is that there? And if it is, if it is, And the word that God gives us says that those who follow the way of Jesus are following one who will bring justice to all nations, to the nations. If that's true, then is it possible that we're not following the way of Jesus in the way we think we might be? That that there is a hint, or perhaps more than a hint, of empty religion in our claims to follow Jesus. It's It's a good indicator where prejudice and where animosity exists in the heart, even towards those, and this is the hard part, right? I'm not just talking about people that you really have no dealings with. I'm talking about people who possibly left to their own devices would want to attack and harm you and would feel justified in doing so. Do you feel animosity towards them? Or do you see that because your salvation is by grace and Jesus has called you to love your enemies and he fills you with his Holy Spirit, that that's actually what your attitude should be towards those who would want to harm you. Where animosity and prejudice exists, it's an indicator of empty religion. It's an indicator of empty religion. So be on guard. Be on guard. Let the Holy Spirit examine that. Last one is this. The way of Jesus is the way of reviving mercy. And I love this. Look at verse three. After declaring that this one, this servant, Jesus, is going to bring about justice at a cosmic, on a cosmic scale, right? I mean, that takes a lot of bigness and a lot of power. The very next thing he's going to say is, and a bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. Do you get the picture there? What Isaiah is saying is that Jesus is going to be gentle. He's going to be merciful. If you find yourself in that place where you're like, 
yeah, I, I find myself kind of tipping the scales towards this direction of empty, empty religion. And I'm just exhausted. I'm exhausted from trying to follow all the rules. I'm exhausted from trying to, from just trying to, I, I'm honest, it's performance-based pursuit of God. Like, I'm exhausted by it. Jesus' response is not to wag his finger at you and say, get it together. His response to you is exactly what Isaiah says right here. He takes the broken reed. Have you ever seen a, a reed? They break real easy, right? And he just says, I'm just gonna take that and stand it back upright. I'm not gonna break it. I'm not gonna snap it off. He takes that, that wick. The, the flame is almost out, right? It's, the wax has burned down to the very end of that candle, and there is almost nothing left. And Jesus comes in and says, I'm not going to snuff that out. I'm going to bring it back to a flame. I'm going to fan it into a flame. That's who our Jesus is. Now look, friends, if your religious or irreligious version of empty religion is kind of where you are, the thing you need to recognize is that there's probably going to come a day, because this is just what God tends to do, there's going to come a day where you're going to Realize that the, the money or the self or the kids or the spouse or whatever it was, that they can't deliver on their promises and they require too much of you. You're gonna come to a place where that's, gonna, that's going to be empty at some point. You're gonna see its emptiness at some point is essentially what I'm saying. Or if you are in that place of going, I've gotta perform, perform, perform for God. If that's you, you're gonna, you're gonna wear out you will spend yourself and you'll have nothing left at some point. And you need to know this verse. You need to cling to this. Maybe today's that day. Maybe it's a week from now. Maybe it's a month from now. Maybe it's 10 years from now. But when it comes, you need to know Isaiah 42.3 because Jesus is not gonna stand there and say, I told you so. He will say, oh, you're a broken reed. You're a wick that's just about to go out. And oh, how much tenderness and mercy I feel towards you. And I will revive you. And my mercy will revive you. You just come. Just come to me. Just come. Don't, don't stay away. Come. As you come, trust that I will embrace you with loving arms. You know, just, just think about the gospel. Just think about Jesus again, the woman caught in adultery. And everyone wants to throw stones at her. What does Jesus do? He just basically huddles around her and says, you, throw, you without sin, you throw the first stone, you self-righteous bigots. He just covers her up in protecting love. Right? The woman from Samaria who's had all the husbands and she wants to debate Jesus on religiosity. And he just says, let's just cut through it all. I am living water. Come and drink. Just again and again and again, Jesus just shows his mercy, his reviving mercy. Now I ask you, is that a better way? It's a better way. It's better, it's better, it's better. There's no version of religion and there's no version of irreligion that can do what Jesus can do. So we're gonna sing now because that's what the text tells us to do. It says, sing a new song. You've heard now the name of Jesus and how good he is, and how merciful he is, and how much he loves, and how he invites his people to walk with him. And so our response is to sing them a new song. So we're just going to sing a little bit. We're just going to sing a little bit. My encouragement to you is let this be a time where you meet with God. 
The Spirit of God is here. It's present. He's promised to be here. He's here. He's present. Listen to him. Sing to him and respond to him as you do so. And that's the application of our, of our text today is to say, when you know this, what do you do? You worship. You worship. So let me pray. The team's going to come. They're going to lead us. We're going to sing some songs together. So, Lord Jesus, we, uh, we adore you. We love you. And we've seen your word has testified that your way is better. And we never want to believe anything else. We always want to know how much better your way is. And I pray specifically for my friends who are here now who, are, who have really doubted that your way is better. And they've probably doubted for fine reasons, Lord, but none of them really add up to dismissing how much better your way is. So I pray that they'd come. I pray that they would hear your call, see your mercy and your tenderness. Would you receive our praises now, Father? We want to sing to you a new song. A new song is born out of a, an understanding that your mercies have been new for us today. New and fresh. So bring forth your songs, not just from us, but from all the people of all nations. All nations singing a new song to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.